Section 13 of Roman History, The Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5. Nero, A.D. 54-68, Part 3. Corbulo, the greatest soldier of his day, whose character was cast in an antique mould and was true to the traditions of the camp, had also to experience the ingratitude of princes. He had led his troops to victory in the north, had baffled the Parthian force and guile, and saved a Roman army from disaster. He had been so loyal to his emperor in the face of strong temptation as to cause the Armenian Tiridates to say in irony to Nero that he was lucky in having such a docile slave. Suddenly he was recalled with flattering words. The death warrant met him on his way, and he fell upon his sword, saying only, I deserved it. So unlooked for was the deed that men could only say that Nero was ashamed to meet his eye while busied in pursuits so unworthy of a monarch. A crowd of other victims passed before us on the scene. The least distinguished were driven forth from Rome to people lonely islands, while the chiefs proved to the world that they had learned from the Stoic creed the secret how to live nobly and die grandly. Women, too, were not wanting in heroic courage. Paulina, the young wife of Seneca, tried to go with him to the grave. Others were glad to save their self-respect by death. Of these, some fell as victims to the jealousy of Caesar. Their eminence, their virtues, and historic names made them dangerous rivals. Some found their wealth a fatal burden when the emperor's wild extravagance had drained his coffers and fresh funds were needed for his lavish outlay. More frequently, they died to expiate a moral protest, which was often silent but not the less expressive. The absolute ruler was provoked by men who would not crouch or bend. He felt instinctively that they abhorred him and fancied that he saw even in the look of Thrasia something of the sour pedagogue's frown. Their fate marked the crisis of the struggle between high thought and an ignoble acting. Lucan, too, at this time, by a less honorable death, closed a short life of poetic fame. He had risen to early eminence in the social circles of the capital, stood high in favor at the court where the passion for the fine arts was in vogue, and as the nephew of Seneca, he shared the studies and for a time the confidence of Nero but the sunshine of princely favor was soon clouded. He was coldly welcomed in the palace, and then forbidden to recite in public. What was the reason of the change we cannot say with certainty? Perhaps he was too bold in the choice of his great subject. The civil wars of the Republic had seemingly a fascination for the literary genius of this time, and many a pen was set to work and many a fancy fired by the story of the men who fought and died in the name of liberty or for the right to misgovern half the world. There was, of course, a danger in such themes. Julius Caesar had written an anti-Cato to attack a popular ideal, and later rulers might be tempted to meet his eulogists with the sword rather than the pen. Historians had already suffered for their ill-timed praises of the great republicans, and Claudius had been warned not to meddle with so perilous a theme. Lucan, therefore, may well have given offense to the instinctive jealousy of a despot, though he was not sparing of his flattering words, as when he bids him take a central place among the heavenly constellations, 
for fear of disturbing the equilibrium of the world, and in the opening books at least, which alone had seen the light, he was wary and cautious in his tone. Or it may be he offended Nero's canons of poetic style, for he cast aside the old tradition and boldly dispensed with the dreamland of fable and all the machinery of the marvellous and superhuman. He aspired to set history to heroic verse, but claimed no knowledge of the world unseen. Or, as it is more likely still, his fame gave umbrage to his master, who was himself a would-be poet, and could not bear to have a rival. Whatever may have been the cause of his disgrace, Lucan could not patiently submit to be silenced. His vanity needed the plaudits of the crowd, his genius, perhaps, seemed cramped and chilled for the want of kindly sympathy. For the habit of public readings, then so common, took to some extent the place of the journals and reviews of modern times, and brought an author into immediate relation with the cultivated world for whom he wrote. When this pleasure was denied him, Lucan first distilled into his poems some of the bitterness of his wounded pride, and then joined a band of resolute men who were conspiring to strike down the monarch of whom they were long weary, and to set up a noble Piso in his place. The plot came to an untimely end, and most of those who joined it lost their lives. Lucan lost not his life only, but his honor, for when his fears were worked upon, he gave evidence against his friends, and even denounced his mother as an accomplice in the plot. We can have little pity when we read that he could not save his life, even by such means, nor can we feel interest in the affected calmness with which in his last moments he recited from his poem an account of death agonies somewhat like his own. There died at the same time the chief professor of a very different creed from that of the great Stoics. Petronius had given a lifetime to the study of the refinements of luxurious ease, his wit and taste and ingenuity had made him the oracle of Roman fashion, or the arbiter, as he was called, of elegance. Nothing new could pass current in the gay world of the city till it had the stamp of his approval. He was the probable author of a satire, which curiously reflects the tone of social thought around him. Its self-contempt, its mocking insight, and its shameless immorality. The work is a strange medley. It contains, among other things, a specimen of a heroic poem on the same theme as that of Lucan's, full of the mythological machinery which the bolder poet had eschewed, and intended, therefore, possibly as a protest against Lucan's revolutionary canons. It gives us also, in the Supper of Trimalchio, a curious picture of the tasteless extravagance and vulgar ostentation of the wealthy upstarts of the times, such as might please the fastidious pride of the nobles in Roman circles. It might amuse them also, sated as they were with fashionable gossip, to hear the common people talk, and to be led in fancy into the disreputable haunts through which the hero of the piece is made to wander in the course of strange adventures like a Jules Blas of old romance. The writer, if he really was Petronius, roused at last a jealousy which caused his ruin. For the vile favorite Tigellinus, who had gained the ear of Nero and aspired to be the master of ceremonies at the palace, could not bear a rival near him. He trumped up a false charge against him, worked upon his master's fears, which had been excited lately by the widespread conspiracy of Piso, and had an order sent to him to keep away from court. 
Petronius took the message for his death warrant and calmly prepared to meet his end. He set his house in order, gave instructions to reward some and punish others of his slaves, wrote out his will, and composed a stinging satire upon the emperor's foul excesses which he sealed and sent to him before he died. It was noted that at the last no philosopher stood at his bedside to whisper words of comfort or dwell on hopes of immortality, but that true, even in death, to his ignoble godless creed, he amused himself, as the streams of life were ebbing, with frivolous epigrams and wanton verses. Besides the portents of cruelty and lust, confined mainly to the walls of Rome, other disasters were not wanting to leave their gloomy traces on the annals of the times. A hasty rising of the British tribes under Queen Boadicea was followed by the sack of two great Roman colonies, Camulodunum and Londinium, and the loss of 70,000 men. In Armenia, a general's incapacity had brought dishonor on the legions and nearly caused the loss of Syria. Italy had been visited with hurricane and plague, and the volcanic forces that had been long pent up beneath Vesuvius gave some token of their power by rocking the ground on which Pompeii stood and laying almost all its buildings low. It was the monarch's turn at length to suffer some of the agony now felt around him, and after fourteen years he fell because the world seemed weary of him and none raised a hand in his defense. The signal of revolt was given first in Gaul, where Vindex, a chieftain of a powerful clan of Aquitania, roused the slumbering discontent into a flame by describing as an eye-witness the infamy of Nero's rule and the ends to which the heavy taxes were applied. He told them of Sporus carried as a bride in Nero's litter and submitting publicly to his caresses, of Tigellinus lording it at Rome and making havoc among noble lives while his master was fiddling in all the theatres of Greece, of Popeia Sabina, first his mistress, then his wife, who had her mules shod with shoes of gold, and five hundred asses daily milked to fill her bath, of the countless millions wrung from toiling subjects and squandered on a vile favorite or a passing fancy. Waving all hopes of personal ambition, he urged Galba, the governor of Spain, to lead the movement and came to terms with Verginius Rufus, who was marching from Germany against him. He killed himself indeed soon after with his own hand in despair, when the soldiers of Virginius fell upon his followers without orders from their general. But Galba was moving with his legions, and courier after courier arrived in Rome to say that the west of the empire was in arms. Nero heard the tidings first at Naples, but took little heed of anything except the taunts of Vindex at his sorry acting, and even when he came at length to Rome, he wavered between childish levity and ferocious threats. Sometimes he could think only of silly jests and scientific toys. Sometimes he dreamed of fearful vengeance on the traitors and their partisans in Rome, and then again he would drop into maudlin lamentations, talk of moving his legions to sympathy by pathetic scenes, or of giving up the throne to live for art in humble peace. He tried to levy troops, but none answered to the call. The Praetorian guards refused to march. The sentries even slunk away and left their posts, while the murmurs grew hourly more threatening, and ominous cries were heard even in the city. 
afraid to stay within the palace he went at night to ask his friends for shelter but the doors of all were barred he came back again to find his chambers plundered and the box of poisons which he had hoarded gone at length a freedman phaon offered him a hiding-place outside the walls and barefooted as he was with covered face nero rode away to seek it as he went by the quarters of the soldiers he heard them curse him and wished galba joy at last he and his guide leave the horses and creep through the brushwood and the rushes to the back of phaon's house where on hands and knees he crawls into a narrow hole which was broken through the wall stretched on a paltry mattress in a dingy cell hungry and turning in disgust from the black bread with the water from the marsh to slake his thirst he listens with reluctance to the friends who urge him to put an end to such ignoble scenes he has a grave dug hastily to the measure of his body and fragments of marble gathered for his monument and he feels the dagger's edge but has not nerve enough to use it he asks some of the bystanders to show him by their example how to die and then he feels ashamed of his own weakness and mutters fine nero now is the time to play the man at last comes phaon's courier with the news that the senate had put a price upon his head the tramp of the horses tells him that his pursuers are on his track and fear gives him the nerve to put the dagger to his throat while true to the passion of his life he mutters what a loss my death will be to art stoicism had taught his victims how to die with grand composure but all his high art and dramatic studies could not save him from the meanest exit from the stage his last wish was granted and they burnt the body where it lay to save it from the outrage that might follow two poor women who had nursed him as a baby and octe the object of his boyish love gathered up his ashes and laid them beside the rest of his own race it might be thought that few but his own pampered favourites could retain any affectionate remembrance of such a monster of sensuality and cruel caprice who at his best was moody and volatile undignified and vain yet it seems that a fond memory of him lingered in the hearts of many of the people who brought their flowers to deck his grave or posted up proclamations which announced that he was living still and would come to take vengeance on his enemies pretenders started up from time to time and gathered adherents round them in his name and even after twenty years one such adventurer of humble birth received from the parthians a welcome and support and was reluctantly abandoned by them at the last. End of section 13